Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 31st, 2015. I had to think about that a second. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I sat down here to um, prepare today's, tonight's program this morning, and thought I could do this all in one evening, and I can't. It's going to require two or maybe even three. There's just a, um, a lot more material here that I really do believe is important to, to, to present, and, and it's important for us to understand. There's a lot more material here than, um, than I had originally gathered. This is Martin Luther in Life and Death, The Devil in Luther's Dreams, Part 1. Last week, in the first installment of the series, which we shall retitle Martin Luther in Life and Death, we gave a background on the life of the Reformer and the events which sent him on a course which he followed. To fully understand Martin Luther, as well as this entire period of German history, we must understand the work of John Wycliffe and the earlier and notable Czech reformer, John Hus, who inspired the Hussite Wars in rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church in the opening quarter of the 15th century, a hundred years before Luther's own contentions with the Church were ever published. Later, even Luther considered himself a Hussite. We shall present pertinent information about these men in the near future. A couple of years ago with um, Sword Brethren, I had done a, a series of podcasts on the 19th century. And um, history of, of Europe in that period from a conspiratorial point of view, what was basically the, the, the motif, those podcasts are posted at the Mein Kampf Project at Christagenia. The, um, and it's amazing that you think you could go back to the beginning when, well, when we could say in, in very vulgar parlance, when all the shit really started. And, and we can't. You go back to the, um, to the 19th century and you realize, if you study that history, that you have to go back to the 16th, the 15th, the 14th, until you're all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That's where you really got to go to get it all from the beginning and understand it as the story unfolds. We'll, we will cover the good side, I will call it, of Luther's development, John Wycliffe, John Huss, in, in future programs. Now, in order to understand the pressing need as many churchmen of, the, um, of Luther's time saw it, for what is called the Reformation, we must understand what it was that men such as Luther sought to reform. His initial desires were not to break from the Roman Church, but to bring church policies into line with Scripture. When he saw that was impossible, only then the Lutheran Church was formed. Last week, presenting a summary of Luther's life, 
And some of the myths surrounding it, which was written by John Tiffany, we saw the quaint little story of the devil and Luther's inkwell. Because Luther had written later in his life that he threw his inkwell at the devil, people in their simplistic way of thinking, began the myth that he was pestered at night by a demon, and he had thrown his inkwell at the demon to chase it away. But it is much more likely that Luther was describing the publication of his 95 Theses as the throwing of his inkwell at the devil, the devil being the Roman church itself, the papacy and all its trappings. Here, in order that we may understand the real devil of Luther's dreams, over the next several installments of this series, as I had said, it was originally planned to be only one, it will be at least two and perhaps three, we shall discuss the permeation of humanism into the Catholic Church and attempt to illustrate the fact that it was the humanists, for the most part, who were also the principal apologists for the Jews. The courts of the popes, as well as those of archbishops in Germany, were filled with humanists at Luther's time. And those in attendance lived profligate and lascivious lifestyles at the expense of poor Christians. The indulgences which Luther protested were being used to finance the profligacy. These were many there were many wicked forces at work during this period. If I had to quantify this period in a summary in one sentence, I may assert that the nobles and the people of Europe were caught between a tyrannical church and the humanists who opposed it and the humanists within it and the Jews who were using humanism to subvert it and the few true Christians who sought to withstand it all. Martin Luther seems to fall into the final category, but even that description is not entirely sufficient. Johann Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press sometime around 1440 AD. And the first thing he produced on it was the famous Gutenberg Bible. However, it was not long before his invention was used to widely and affordably distribute many other writings and not all of them so pious. Within 70 years, the world was set ablaze, and the resulting fires had never been quenched. However, the Gutenberg Press was really just a tool which accelerated forces that were already in play. And to understand comprehensively all of the divisions of thought and all of the factors behind the Reformation, as well as the catalysts which made reform necessary, we would probably have to keep going back in time until we got back as far as Genesis chapter 3. For our purpose tonight, however, we will begin a little more recently, perhaps starting with the late 15th century, and a church scholar named Desiderius Erasmus. This Erasmus was a church scholar, 
one who had even edited his own text, the Greek New Testament. His text was later used by a 16th century printer and classical scholar named Robert Stephanus, who printed four editions of his own Greek New Testament, one of which included a Latin translation by Erasmus, and which was the first Bible edition to employ verse divisions. Stephanus based his New Testament texts on the work of Erasmus. The later English translation of the King James Version of the Bible was based, at least in part, to a great degree, actually, on the manuscripts of Erasmus and Stephanus. Both Erasmus as well as Stephanus were early notable humanists. Erasmus esteemed the study of the classics as equal to or in some ways superior to the study of Christian scriptures. And this guy was a priest. And Stephanus printed many classical works as well as his biblical editions. Stephanus also later printed many of the writings of John Calvin. He died in 1559, about 13 years after the death of Martin Luther. I mentioned Stephanus in connection with Erasmus only for one reason. Because at this time, humanism seems to have fully per, 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 I'm sorry, permeated the organized Christian churches, both Catholic and Protestant to a much greater degree than is ever generally recognized. Many churchmen at this time were actually humanists and not truly Christians at all in their philosophies. We will illustrate Erasmus and some others starting this evening. We saw last week in the first part of this series on Martin Luther that he began his academic career as a humanist. Martin Luther started as a humanist and only went to the monastery as the result of a personal epiphany. Last night during the presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 given here at Christagenia, we discuss at length the last clause of 1 Corinthians 15.44 and the King James Version translation where it says, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. In this manner, we may perceive that the existence of one is independent of the existence of the other. Yet, in every single extant ancient manuscript containing this verse, we read in Greek that if, that's a big if, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The difference is the word if. And once it is found in the Greek, and it is in every manuscript, we may perceive that Paul is telling us that the existence of the natural body indicates, speaking of Adamic man, indicates the existence of the spiritual body, that the spiritual body's existence is predicated upon that of the natural body. When you have a natural body, you also have a spiritual body. 
this is a significant difference. Yet, once it is realized that the manuscripts upon which the King James Version was based were in large part prepared by humanists, Erasmus, Stephanus, then we can surmise why such departures from the ancient texts may be found. Erasmus of Rotterdam was a highly influential Catholic priest, classical scholar, theologian, and Renaissance humanist. He was quite influential within the Roman Church and even agreed with many of the demands for reform of that church, but he would not break with Rome, continued to recognize the papal authority, and kept himself apart from reformers such as Luther. However, he also did many things to support humanism within the church. In the balance of this multi-part presentation, there will be many excerpts Tonight's program will be mostly excerpts from the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johann Johnson. Volume 3, Book 5. This was written in German and published in English translation in London in 1900. For our purposes here, where the book is referred to, it will only be referred to as the history of the German people. And we'll quote from pages 21 and 22. We'll quote at length describing the career and attitudes of the so-called great Christian scholar Erasmus, who wasn't a Christian at all. Erasmus explained the scriptures much in the same way as he would explain mythological fables and sagas not according to the literal meaning of the words, but according to the general truths and morals hidden behind the narratives. In his Handbook of a Soldier of Christ, he writes thus, quoting Erasmus, if you read in an unallegorical sense that Adam's body was made of clay and the soul breathed into it, that Eve was formed out of his rib, that they were forbidden to eat of the apple tree, that God took a walk in the Garden of Eden, that the guilty couple hid themselves, that an angel with a flaming sword was placed at the gate of paradise so that Adam and Eve might not go back again. And actually the angel with the sword is placed there as a symbol guaranteeing that Adam and Eve will be back again. So we see where the, um, the popular misconception of that verse, how old that is. If I say you read all this only literally, on the surface, as it were, I do not see that you have done more than in reading about the clay statue which Prometheus made, and how he stole fire from heaven and gave it to his image, so that the dust became alive. There may be, indeed, greater profit in reading the poetical fables of the heathens, if the allegorical meaning is grasped, than in reading Bible stories, if we only keep to the literal sense. Now, this is fine, because... 
actually the creation account is in parables and allegory, whether Erasmus understood them or not. But what he's doing is he's telling us that because they're in parables and allegory and can't be understood literally, they're no better than the later Greek myths. And, and that is not the Christian attitude by far. And that's the nicest thing that we could say. What difference is there between the book of Kings and Judges and the history of Livy if you leave out the allegory? For in Livy, there is much that would tend to the improvement of morals, while in these books of the Bible, there is much that is offensive. For example, the intrigues of David, his act of adultery, compassed by a murder, the guilty love of Samson, and so forth. Nearly all the books of the Old Testament, moreover, are frequently objectionable, either from the obvious absurdity of their narratives or from their enigmatical obscurity. In the New Testament also, obscurities occur over and over again in a passage where Jesus is predicting the end of the world and the persecutions the apostles will undergo. He confuses, and this isn't true, he confuses and contradicts his sayings to such an extent that it seems to me he must have wished to make his meaning dark, not only for the apostles, but also for us. Many passages are, in my opinion, the words of Erasmus, inexplicable. For instance, that thing about the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost, others can only be explained figuratively by the fire that is talked of in Scripture. We must understand the fire of God's wrath and the punishment of God. There is no other flame in which that rich man in the gospel is tortured and no other punishment of hell than the incessant soul torture which attends the habit of sinning. So we see that Erasmus, from what I can perceive and what we should perceive, as a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding which should be apparent to at least many identity Christians. Erasmus doubted and disputed with Scripture. He missed many of its lessons, ostensibly because of the methods of interpretation forced upon him by the organized church, and sought refuge in the pagan literature as a resolution to his predicament. As pious as his humanism at times seemed, he was nevertheless a humanist. As a digression, the pagan literature... It should be studied by Christians. Paul of Tarsus is a fine example of a Christian who was well acquainted, well studied in pagan classics. But they are only of value in the context of the grander historical picture. That pagan beliefs and philosophies developed in the departure of man from God. And Christ leads man back to God. 
That is the overall panorama of history which the Christian Bible actually does present. And the history of the pagan clan, the pagan poets also serves to prove that. Continuing with the description of Erasmus, the great so-called Christian church scholar, from page 23. In his commentaries on the New Testament, says Dr. Johann Eck, a critic of Erasmus, very truly, Erasmus presumes to set right the Holy Ghost, who was the instructor of the apostles. You say, Eck wrote to him, that the evangelists were mistaken. No Christian will ever accept the theory of the evangelists having made mistakes. Far be it from us ever to suppose such a possibility of men taught by the Holy Ghost and by Jesus our Savior, of men who were the divinely inspired founders of our faith. If in this point the utterance of Holy Writ is not to be relied on, what other part of it can be safe against suspicion of error? That the writers of the Bible were on the whole inspired by the Holy Ghost and guided by divine promptings, Erasmus did not deny. But he granted as much as this to the great heathen writers and poets who had taught such noble lessons and whom he considered worthy to stand side by side with the sacred writers of the Christian church. Let the first place, by all means, Erasmus says in his Table Talk, a book written by him. He granted to the sacred writers, but for all that I so constantly find in the pagan authors, passages so pure, so holy, so godlike, that I am convinced that a divine spirit prompted the utterances of these men. I cannot read Cicero's essays on old age, on friendship and on duty, or his Tusculane, without sometimes being moved to kiss the volumes and to bless the pious heart, which must have been inspired by the deity. But when I hold in my hands the moral writings of modern days, how cold they all seem. I can scarcely refrain from exclaiming, Holy Socrates, pray for us, these are the words of Erasmus, the great, supposedly great Catholic scholar. Holy Socrates, pray for us. I often feel sure that Virgil and Horace are saints in heaven. And if the pagans could become saints, to what end is all this difficult Christian asceticism? To what end the following of the evangelical council? What profit is there in the institutions of the church, in fastings, in pilgrimages, and in other devotional rites, none of which are actually demanded of Christians? Those things are Catholic. Erasmus, who is um, obviously disenchanted with Christianity, as it was enforced by the Catholic Church, is blaming that on Christianity, not separating it from Catholic tradition.
he should have realized that these things are not demanded in the scripture. He should have sought to reform the church from within. He goes on to say, Christ, the all-perfect teacher of virtue and the loftiest of sages, who presented goodness to us in utter purity, Christ, so Erasmus held, had not enjoined fasting. That is true. That's a good observation. On the contrary, he had set himself entirely in opposition to this and other kindred regulations. Fasting was a human invention. It was even a form of tyranny. And that's Erasmus's opinion. I wouldn't go that far in my assessment. Fasting is very useful in prayer, in meditation, and in humbling oneself before God. But fasting is not demanded of, of Christians as the Catholic Church in the monasteries had enforced. If we look at the criticisms of the Bible, reiterated today by pagans and Jews alike, we must realize that many of those criticisms, which we can esteem are unrighteous and untrue, because they're always taking biblical passages and books out of context, many of those criticisms which Jews and pagans have today are found right here in the writings of Erasmus, who was supposedly a Christian scholar, and in reality, he was a pagan humanist. To continue with the history of the German people, the philosophy of Christ, for the promulgation of which Erasmus desired to labor, was in substance no more than the philosophy of a respectable moral man who kept himself, as far as possible, blameless from the world. So that is what Erasmus reduced his picture of Christ to. In his table talk, which he had constantly in his hands in old age, and which he considered an important work for Christian education, the means towards this education consists chiefly in the acquisition of fine intellectual culture, in following the diktats of healthy human understanding, and in making use of all possible aids of human skill. Erasmus says and teaches many godless things in his table talk under feigned names and characters, says Luther, the author of the history, quoting Martin Luther on Erasmus. Above all, he advocates war against the church and against the Christian faith. The table talk was specially intended for the young, and nevertheless, it contains the most venomous ridicule of monks and of cloister life, of fasts, pilgrimages, and so forth, and even pictures of improper scenes. Erasmus could not even refrain from coarse lasciviousness in some of his notes on Holy Scripture. The morale of it all is that human cleverness rules life and views death because it cannot escape from it, with philosophic resignation. In a treatise on the contempt of death, in which he seeks to comfort a father for the loss of his 20-year-old son, 
He quotes various passages from pagan writers on the shortness and misery of life, and amongst them, the well-known saying, the best of all is never to have been born. The next best is to die at the moment of birth. This is the attitude of Erasmus on death. Who is there, he asks, who could not with perfect truth concur in this statement? The wise man must bear everything with the unflinching courage of cheerfulness. Sorrow is of no profit to the dead and is hurtful to the living. At the end of the treatise, he gives a so-called Christian view of death, introducing it with the following words. After having had recourse hitherto to the means of consolation, which are at the service of every pagan, I will now briefly state what is required by religion and by Christian faith. Here are some of the sentences which we are to regard from Erasmus as Christian and pious. However terrible death may be, we must make it welcome, for we can in no way escape from it. And again, even if death annihilated us completely, we might still bear it with equanimity, because it puts an end to the weariness of life. And again, if by death the soul, with, with its ethereal origin, escapes from the coarse prison and labor house of the body, we may count those happy and to be congratulated who escape from life and return to a state of blissful freedom. Of Christ, the giver of eternal life, and of the hopes grounded on him, there is no mention in his treatise. And these are the author's words about Erasmus, who wrote a treatise on death as a Catholic priest and never mentioned Christ. Such was the new culture, the Christian philosophy, the new theology promulgated by Erasmus the Humanist. These are the author's words, the historian, Johann Jansen. Erasmus, for a long time, looked upon as the greatest intellectual light in the Western world and as the center of literary Europe. His writings were bought up with unprecedented enthusiasm, read and devoured with the greatest avidity. He himself speaks of his having been saluted as the champion of learning, the high priest of true theology, the star of Germany. It sounds like Erasmus had a whole team of Jewish publicists. When he returned to Germany from England, and that was my comment, right? When he returned to Germany from England in the autumn of 1513, his arrival was treated as a great and joyful event and celebrated as a universal festival for all people of culture. In many towns, he was received almost as a king. He was met by ambassadors, speeches were delivered, gifts and addresses presented to him, as if he had a whole team of Jewish publicists. Even Ulrich 
Zosius was so bewitched by the brilliancy of his endowments, the versatility of his culture, and the exquisiteness of his Latin, Erasmus was a Latin scholar, that he declared him to be the greatest of all the scholars Germany had ever possessed. The whole generation of youthful enthusiasts for classical learning were beside themselves with joy and looked upon Erasmus as a saint. Thou incomparable man, says the humanist William Nessel in a letter to Erasmus, thou hast the power to bestow immortality. That's the blasphemous humanist viewpoint. And another time, Nestle declared that he, meaning Nestle, stood as far below the lowest of scholars as Erasmus was high above the highest. Talk about a sycophant. Humanists like Eobanus Hesus, Justice Jonas, Caspar Schaube made pilgrimages to the dwelling place of Erasmus through forest after forest, writes Schaube through villages raging with infectious diseases in order to seek out the one pearl of the universe. The worship of genius, thus concentrated on Erasmus, was an entirely new manifestation in Germany. Among the smaller fry of the younger humanists, it degenerated into a perfect mania for mutual adulation a mania which Erasmus encouraged by the systematic manufacture of fulsome eulogisms, which he lavishly, lavished, I'm sorry, which he lavished profusely on any individual who might, he thought, at some time or other, be used as a mouthpiece for his own end. In other words, Erasmus, even though he was the, the scholar, he was being adored all over Europe, he spoke well of whoever he thought that he could use for his own objectives. That's what the historian is saying here. And, and it's obvious in many of Erasmus's own letters Another way in which Erasmus exercised a potent influence over the younger humanists was by the contempt which his teaching and his one-sided classical enthusiasm inspired for all medieval ecclesiastical learning. The attitudes of Erasmus are penetrating the church and the universities. It has been said of him, and not without justice, that he brought the study of philosophy into disrepute, that he exalted rhetoric, wit, and elegance of style above serious scientific and speculative research. It is very easy, writes Winfling, 
to represent scholastic learning and sophistry and barbarism to young men who are enamored of the pagan poets who have all style but are really quite superficial. These young enthusiasts are only too glad to see contempt poured on studies which require hard work from them. And on the other hand, to hear praise bestowed on all that they find easy and entertaining, sort of like our modern schools. The humanist Jacob Loker, surnamed Philomusus, had already advocated the cult of the muses. Philomusus, friend of the muses, right? Had already advocated the cult of the muses in place of the scholastic subjects. The sacred art of poetry, he said, should take precedence of all other studies. The scholiasts, with all their supposed learned labors, were mere theological jackanapes, deserving the scorn and ridicule of all really cultivated people. But from the poets, the rising generation would get real culture. Even Ovid was an exceedingly chaste writer, and the sayings of Juvenal were on a par with evangelical truth. And that's Ovid and Juvenal were really the pornographers of classical Roman poetry. Their poetry was very bowdy and did border on Sometimes it was pornographic in nature. And, and what the writer is saying here is that Erasmus, that this supposedly Catholic Christian scholar, who's really a humanist, is um, promoting the studies in things that are superficial and disdaining the real studies which lay in the difficult topics, and that his followers, human, other humanists, are, are um, doing that same thing in Europe in the 15th century, the late 15th century. With the second decade of the 16th century, complaints increase concerning the decay and depreciation of philosophic studies the one-sided exclusive attention to the classics, the, the reading of the poets, and the self-conceited arrogance as well as immorality of the younger humanists. Philosophy, writes Johann Cochleus in the year 1512, is completely set aside. It is a great mistake for humanistic studies however much they adorn real scholarship, are hurtful in the extreme to those who have no foundation of sound erudition, erudition meaning scholastic learning. Hence the jejun, jejun means naive, hence the jejun shallowness of a certain set of persons whom the uninitiated have erroneously given the title of poets, hence their buffoonery and lasciviousness. They are base slaves of Bacchus and Venus, not pious priests of Phoebus and Pallas. 
or Apollo and Athena. Apollo and Athena were um, being likened to idols of the deeper studies where Bacchus and Venus are, are the um, Bacchus is Dionysius, the god of revelry. Venus is the Roman love goddess. Things that are superficial and, and um, easy rather, rather than things that are deep and contemplative. The poets, as the younger humanists, were commonly called, worked themselves, I'm sorry, the poets, as the younger humanists were commonly called, the young humanists at this time in Germany were called, they called themselves poets, worked themselves to such a pitch of enthusiasm for the classics that they could see no value whatever in anything that was not Latin or Greek. In language and thought, they repudiated their German origin, their apostasy from the traditional spirit of the fatherland, protruded itself so egregiously that they even became ashamed of their German names and manufactured new ones from the Latin or Greek vocabularies. That's why we see so many 15th, 16th century, century, 17th century humanist so-called scholars with Latin names. And evidently, we had the influential Catholic priest Erasmus for helping to foster this. From this point on, the young humanists in Germany were adopting Greek and Latin names for themselves, and that made it difficult to tell who was who. It made it difficult to tell which of them are German, which of them were Jewish. The importance may, of this may be realized further on in this presentation, but name changing amongst the humanists was common, whether they were German or Jews. We're going to skip a few pages in this book which describe much of the insipid works which these New Age humanist poets were said to be producing at this time. We're going to continue with the description of the humanist poets of Germany at this time from page 30. And this is right from Martin Luther's time, the early 16th century. But as crowning specimens of bad taste and utter worthlessness, we commend those humanist poems which deal with Christian material representing the divine creator as ruler of high Olympus, as a thunder and as a thundering Zeus, turning sacred things, in short, into mere child's play. The Obanus Hesses, for instance, in the year 1514, published a volume of Christian heroids or love letters from Christian heroines to their lovers after the, after the model of Ovid. Amongst these are letters from St. Mary of Magdalene to Christ, and even God the Father is made to exchange letters with the Virgin Mary. 
One cannot read this sort of thing without a shudder. Erasmus, however, declared himself delighted with the work and greeted Eobanus on the strength of it as the German Ovid, who alone could rescue Germany from barbarism. These poets displayed greater naturalness in several shameless imitations of the ancient erotic writers, in which Conrad Keltis had been their precursor and model. Keltis had far out-Ovided Ovid, Ovid the Roman poet who was pretty pornographic himself, by his indecent descriptions and had claimed special merit on this score, saying that he wished by a naked presentation of reality to warn and check the unbridled appetites of the young. Under the same shallow pretext, many of the humanists used to read the most profligate pagan poetry with their young pupils, young men who would be preparing for the college. This is an ages-old deception. We see in Germany at this time that sexual perversion was being introduced by the humanists to young men under the pretext of education. And of course, Christians have been falling for that trick ever since. The next passage that we're going to read from this book, The History of the German People, opens with a letter to Erasmus lamenting the situation which is just described by a man identified in the book only as Prince Carpi. Prince Carpi is actually Albert III of Pio, P-I-O. He was the Prince of Carpi. He was an intellectual adversary of Erasmus. But he was also a friend of the de' Medici. He was quite influential and even apparently arranged the marriage of Catherine de' Medici to Henry II of France. Carpi was deprived of his principality in 1525 by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. He was a defender, Carpi was a defender of the Roman Church, but also, as it is apparent in this letter, he was a defender of more traditional Catholic Christianity. He disputed with Erasmus until his death in 1531. Carpi was a a friend of the de' Medici's and a member of the de' Medici court. He was probably an Italian an Italian nobleman, and not a Murano Jew. That's my assessment from his writing and, and from some of, some of the other things that he did. Can you deny, asks Prince Carpi of Erasmus, that the same state of things exists now in Germany as has so long prevailed with us in Italy where the so-called fine arts are cultivated exclusively and with contempt for philosophy and theology. 
A melancholy mixture of Christian truth and pagan ideas is spread abroad. Love of controversy fills all minds. And social morality does not conform in any way to Christian doctrine. So Carpe is actually taking Erasmus into account for what's going on in Germany. In the 14th and 15th centuries, many of the Italian humanists had already assumed an attitude of indifference or skepticism towards the church, and they were no longer ruled by Christianity, with its constant reference to a higher life. They filled the land with their lascivious writings and set examples of profligacy by their lives. With Greek learning, they had in most cases imbibed Greek vices, and they were followers of a shameless philosophy of pleasure-seeking, as Boccaccio has shown in his novels, the German historian referring to Boccaccio, the Italian novelist, of those centuries. As we pointed out last night in our presentation on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, with not so many words where Paul says bad association corrupts good morals, Paul of Tarsus also taught that a rejection in a belief in the spirit, a rejection in a belief in eternal life, a rejection of transcendentalism, as it's called, a rejection of the notion that you're going to be judged by God for what you do in this life, that leads directly to permissible immorality. Bad association corrupts good character. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you may die. That's the attitude of both the enemies of God and the apostates from God. And that's the attitude of these humanists who are um, liberating themselves from Christian, from Christian thought and morality. It's very clear why we had humanism. And this contagion was now spreading rapidly in Germany. Men like Lochter, Hermann von den Busch, Ulrich von Hutten were going to be, uh, this Ulrich von Hutten will be considered at length later in his presentation, perhaps next week, were in no way behind the Italians in immorality. So the German humanists were just as immoral as the ones described in Italy 100 and 150 years before. And they pushed the disregard of Christian duties in their daily lives to the utmost excess. As strong drinkers, the Germans indeed outdid the Italians. Not one of the later would have competed with an Eobanus Hessus, who thought nothing of, this is one of the notable humanists in Germany at the time, who thought nothing of emptying a bucket of ale at one drop. 
and he was celebrated in song as the mighty topper. As for that melancholy mixture of Christian truths and pagan philosophy, which Prince Carpi and other seriously-minded Italians deplored, there was, indeed, ample evidence of its having taken root in Germany also. Witness especially the teaching of Conrad Mutianus, Conrad Mutianus Rufus, and the circle of humanists of whom he was the leader. Among the North German universities, Erfurt had already been distinguished at an early period for its zeal in teaching the Greek and Latin classics, and had received in this respect the most hearty support from three leading religious professors, with whose labors the fame of the university in the last decades of the 15th century is principally connected. Jodicus Trutzeller of Eisenach and Bartholomew Arnold of Usingen, theologians, and Henning Gode, professor of law. These three men, who later on, at the outbreak of the religious war, suffered misfortunes and calumny of all sorts for their adhesion to the Catholic faith, were at the time we write of on friendly terms with the chief leaders of the rising generation of humanists, Maternus Pistorus and Nicholas Marshak. And what we have here is a description of Erfurt University, which was the, the veritable center of humanism in the 16th century in northern Germany. And Erfurt, at Erfurt, these supposedly Catholic theologians and professors were basically on friendly terms with the humanists and coddling the humanists. These professors were influential men and they were coddling the humanists. We're going to see that throughout this presentation that the um, the papacy of Leo X and, and the German archbishops, the courts, the popes, even before Leo X, and, and he was a de Medici, those courts, the courts of the archbishops in Germany, they were filled with humanists. So we have supposedly Christian academics embracing and supporting humanists who are promoting immorality openly right from the birth of the humanist movement in Germany. Maternus and Moschak at, at Erfurt University used the ancient authors, poets and all, exclusively as the subjects of their lectures. But with wise discussion and moderation, they did not insist on undivided attention to humanistic teaching. And in spite of their enthusiasm for the classics, they were far from seeking to reform the study of theology by means of the humanities, to upset the ancient doctrine of the church, or to attack the foundations of Christianity. It was not until Mudian, who's described above as 
Mutianus. Mutian, a prebendary of Gaza, assumed the leadership of the rising generation of humanists. A prebendary is a type of priest. It's actually a priest who's a senior priest who's an administrator in a cathedral or in a monastery. It's called a prebendary. So this Mutian is a humanist, and he is a senior priest. It was not until Mutian, a prebendary of Gatha, assumed the leadership of the rising generation of humanists, that a strong spirit of innovation declared itself among the Erfurt poets, the young humanists at the University of Erfurt. Within the circle of humanists, which included Eobanus Hess, Curius Rubianus, and Curius Rubianus was actually the, um, the rector at Erfurt University from 1520, I believe. Petraeus Eberbach, George Spalatin, Justice Jonas, Herobord von der Martin, and for a short time also, Ulrich von Hutton. Mutian was worshipped as a teacher of pure virtue and a father of beatific peace. Now, Mutian will be of interest to us here and also in our next presentation in this series when um, we discuss the arguments among the Christians of Europe in regard to the writings of the Jews, which actually began long before Martin Luther's treatise on the Jews and their lives. Luther, in his treatise in 1543, which is at least 20 years past where we are now, Luther had advised that all of the Talmudic writings and the writings of the rabbis be confiscated from the Jews. There were uh, many times, I believe we identified incidents back to the 12th century in France where Talmuds were confiscated and burned. And here in Germany in the 16th century, there's debate over confiscating Talmuds again. And Mutianus, Mutius, Mutian, he's called here, the, um, the humanist priest, he actually argued in favor of letting the Jews keep their Talmuds. So he's a humanist. We'll, we'll get to that probably next week. In Italy, Mutian had become a warm advocate of the Neoplatonism which prevailed among the humanists of that country. And Politian and Marsilius Ficinus, apostles of this philosophy, were objects of his particular veneration. He left no record of his opinions in regard of any work of learning. And in that respect, he likened himself to Christ and Socrates, who he said had left no writings to the world. But as many, conf I don't know, the word, word of the Lord is the entire Old Testament, most of the New, right? Christ left plenty of writings to the world. But as many confidential letters to friends leave little doubt that, for a time at least, 
he had quite broken with positive Christianity. Now, this man's a priest, and, and he's a prebendary, and, and he's working at a large university, so he's broken with positive Christianity. But we, we, we in identity Christianity do realize how broken all priests are of Christianity, even if they don't really know it. He conceived Christianity as the religion of pure humanity, not founded like Mosaism on any revelation. In a letter to Spalatin, he says, I am not going to ask you a riddle out of the scriptures, but a straightforward question, which can be solved by secular study. If Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, what did mankind do through all the centuries before his birth? Were they fast bound in the gross darkness of ignorance, or had they a share in truth and salvation? So we see that beauty and displays a complete ignorance of the Old Testament scripture in the context of history. I will come to your help with my own view of the matter. Christ's religion did not begin with his incarnation. And here for a minute, it seems like Mutian's doing good, on the surface anyway. Christ's religion did not begin with his incarnation, but was already in existence before all the centuries, as was Christ himself. For what else is the true Christ, the actual Son of God, than, as St. Paul says, the wisdom of God, which was not only present with the Jews in a small corner of Syria, but also with the Greeks, the Italians, and the Germans, although they all had different forms of religion. Cain brought offerings of the fruits of the earth, Abel of the firstborn among the cattle. What other forms of thank offerings, other regions of the earth presented to the deity, you can read for yourself. The commandment of God, which gives light unto the soul, has two heads. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But by fulfilling this law, we are made partakers of the kingdom of heaven. And here, Mutian shows a degree of piety, but he is lost in other important areas. This is the natural law, not graven in stone, like that of Moses, not cut in brass, like that of Rome, not written on parchment paper, but instilled into our hearts by the highest of teachers. Whosoever with due piety partakes of this memorable and wholesome Eucharist accomplishes a divine action. For the true body of Christ is peace and concord, and there can be no nobler sacrifice than mutual love. In another letter, speaking of the impending Easter festival, he writes, Our Savior is the Lamb and the Shepherd, but who is our Savior? Righteousness, peace, and joy. That is the Christ who has come down from heaven. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. The veritable Christ is soul and spirit, which can neither be touched with the hands nor seen with the eyes. So Mutian, like the hippies of the 1960s, embraces the Jesus of love. But he disregards 
the Jesus of hate. He disregards the Jesus who commands obedience to God's law. And he forms for himself a comfortable, feel-good God after his own image. Mutian, the the humanist, is basically, while he professes a love of Jesus, his Jesus is an idol. He's an idolater. And in our next paragraph, we will see the proof of the allegation. With regard to the Bible, he held the opinion that the authors of the sacred narrative had wrapped up all manner of mysteries in riddles and metaphors that the Jewish writers, he's mistaking the authors of the scripture for Jews, which certainly isn't true, dealt as copiously in fables as Apuleius and Aesop. He even went so far as to think there was deep wisdom in the opinion of the Mohammedans that Christ was not crucified himself, but some other man who bore a strong resemblance to him. And we have to make a comment. The insane babblings of Muhammad, made nearly six centuries after Christ, had no authority whatsoever to speak of Christianity. Neither should they ever be given credence by any Christian scholar. Any Christian scholar who gives the Quran one ounce of respect is a fraud and a liar. His, meaning Mudian, his notions of the deity were very confused. There is only one God and one goddess, so he once taught a friend. Here's where we see the mask come off Mudian. But there are as many names as deities. For instance, Jupiter, Saul, Apollo, Moses, Christ, Luna, Ceres, Prosperine, Tellus, Mary. But beware of repeating this. These things must be wrapped in silence, like the Eleusinian mysteries. The Eleusinian mysteries were ancient Greek pagan rites. In matters of religion, we must make use of the mask of fables and enigmas. Let us, by the grace of Jupiter, that is, of the best and highest God, despise the lesser gods. When I say Jupiter, I mean Christ and the true God. But enough of these all-too-lofty things. Mysteries ought not to be made common, he says in another place. We must keep silence concerning them or else present them under the cloak of fable and allegory, so as not to cast pearls before swine. It is for this reason that Christ left no written record behind him, and that the man who wrote the gospel histories made such extensive use of parables. Theodore, the great tragedy writer, was robbed of his eyes when he once presumed to turn into a fable some incident out of the Jewish mysteries, by which he may well mean the Hebrew Bible, being fooled into thinking that the Jews were the Israelites. Mudian was a Catholic priest. He was a prebendary, a senior priest with an administrative role. This is the condition of the priesthood in the days of Erasmus. 
where it was rife with humanism and obviously lacking in any sound learning of Christian scriptures or a contextual understanding of the classics. Where Christ said, no man cometh to the Father except through me, Mutian claims that all of the idols of the nations are actually the same Father. And therefore, religion to Mutian really does not matter at all. In this attitude, this humanist attitude which Mutian has espoused, we see the seeds of modern ecumenism. The Catholic Church has adopted Mutian's attitude as its official church policy, that the Muslims, the Jews, the, the, the Indians, the squat monsters, they really all worship the same God. That's what Mutian's saying. He's saying it in slightly different terms, but he's saying it 500 years ago. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Continuing with Mutian from page 36 of volume 3 of the History of the German People. From remarks of this sort, it is evident that Mutian, to the distress of his fellow prebendaries, must have held back from the sacrifice of the Holy Mass and from receiving the Holy Communion. We learn further that he considered the service of the altar as a waste of time, that he rejected auricular confession, called mendicant friars hooded monsters, and Lenten diet fool's diet. Only fools, he said, look for salvation in fasting. The priests, he complained, are not satisfied with mortifying our bodies by fasts, they torment our souls also by retailing to their congregations what they have done that deserves to be cursed. I always laughed right heartily, he wrote to the humanist Petraeus Eberbach, when Benedictus used to tell us of the complaints of your mother that you so seldom went to church that you would not fast and that you would eat eggs contrary to the general custom. I used to excuse these unprecedented crimes by saying, Petraeus shows great wisdom in not going to church, for the building might fall in. The galleries tumble down. It is a very dangerous place. Besides, it's only the priests who get any money for going. The laity get nothing but salt and water, like the goats. <coughs> That's why we call the people a flock, for a flock is a collection of sheep and goats. As to fasting, of course, Petraeus hates it, and with good reason, he knows what happened to his father. He fasted and died. Had he gone on eating, as he had been in the habit of doing, he would not have died. When Benedictus heard this, Mutian goes on, he frowned angrily and said, Who will absolve you, all you bad Christians? Studying and learning, I answered. At this moment, he once wrote concerning a service in the choir. I am called away by a tinkling bell to a pious murmuring, like a Cappadocian fire worshiper. 
Eudian saw many things which were legitimately wrong with the church, as Martin Luther also did. However, Luther sought reform, and although he did not execute that reform perfectly, he sought a church with practices that agreed more closely with Scripture. On the other hand, Mutian and a whole generation of men like him, who saw something wrong with the church, turned to humanism and turned to scoffing at Christianity when Christianity was not to blame. Having no anchor, he was blown about by the winds. Yet, he remained a Catholic priest, influential among the humanists. Continuing with Mutian from page 37. Amongst the books which Mutian was in the habit of recommending to his friends were the humorous anecdotes of the humanist Heinrich Bebel of Tübingen, a collection in Latin of all sorts of scurrilous, satirical, and even blasphemous anecdotes, tales, and jests. Bebel's skeptical scorn was hurled not only at the scandalous lives of the clergy, at fasts and other church ordinances, at the sale of indulgences and the worship of relics, but at many of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity itself. He speaks in the coarsest manner of the Trinity and the scheme of redemption, which these people certainly did not understand, not correctly, and ridicules the Christian's consolation in the sufferings of the body. That outward respect for current church doctrine was sometimes paid in spite of anti-scriptural opinions is shown by an anecdote from the life of Peter Linden, who, on being taken to task for ridiculing the doctrine of the Trinity, answered, Oh, well, I will not persist obstinately in my opinion, and rather than make acquaintance with the modern's fire, I will believe in a quadrinity, and the jest there being that people should believe anything so long as they ensure their own safety. Make haste and get Bethel's facetiae. It looks like facetiae, things that he's giving aspects on seems to be the meaning of the title, aspects in English. Writes Mutian to Herobrod, Mutian promoting Heinrich Bebel's very impious book. Writes Mutian to Herobrod von der Martin. There is no doubt that coarse anecdotes have great influence on people. They arrest attention. They go straight to the mark, and they stick in the memory. And that's true because we see that today on television of Jewish comics. He expressed a desire to publish such a collection himself. The personal influence that Mutian exercised over the humanists who, re- who frequented his house corresponded with the spirit that characterizes his letters. Irreverent jesting against sacred things was encouraged 
and we read that in conversation with Mutian and his associates, and to the general satisfaction of the company, Crotus Rubianus used to call the Holy Mass a popish comedy, the Holy Relics raven bones, and the prayers at canonical hours a mere baying of hounds. He used to say that Cicero was a saintly apostle and a greater Roman hierarch than Pope Leo X. Well, that might be true. Leo X wasn't even a Roman. Codius Rubianus was the rector of the University of Erfurt from 1520. He was born, Crotus Rubianus was born, Johann Jaeger. His real name is Johann Jaeger. He was one of those German humanists who changed his name to a Roman name because he despised being German, which was, as we've seen earlier, speaking about Erasmus, which was typical of the young humanists at this time. This contentious bearing towards the church and its sacred teaching was often accompanied by unlimited license in conduct. Here's the real key to these humanists. Here's what they are really interested in. Concerning the sexual transgressions of his friends, Mutian was wont to speak with a cynicism compared with which the erotic writers of antiquity seem almost chaste, or chaste, if you will. Even the seduction and carrying off of a nun was treated by him as a good joke. It is not to be wondered that at Erfurt and Gotha and in all places where the later humanists preached the new gospel of classicism and tried to win disciples to their cause, men of earnest lives and strong church principles should have fought shy of them and opposed them. In many cases, this antagonism went to the length of hostility to all poetic culture. The new gospel was judged by the lives of its apostles and by the spiritual fruit which they brought to the market and which was for the most part worthless or poisonous. Humanism was vain and empty. It was only a cover for lasciviousness and license. It does not surprise me, writes Cochleus, that so many people could have become decided antagonists of humanistic studies who formerly befriended and encouraged them. For what good is done by all these poets who tramped about Germany as play actors and swashbucklers? Wherever they go, they stir up strife and enmity. Their manners, to put it mildly, are loose and free. Only in exceptional cases does one find in them any reverence for what is sacred and venerable. Their sole delight is to insult and ridicule existing institutions. And anyone who refuses help in overthrowing the later is regarded by them as a barbarian. Germany was completely overrun with literary parasites, charlatans, lampoonists, 
who made the vilification of the church and the clergy and the monastic orders a special branch of their newly acquired culture. And the historian puts the term culture in quotes, so it's a sarcastic reference. From this we can see quite clearly that the 1960s actually hit Germany in the 1500s. That's what humanism was. It had hit Italy in the 1400s, and there is nothing new under the sun. However, for Europe, this is only the beginning of sorrows. In our next installment, we shall see how humanists, who we have already seen were also ecumenists, that they were like the, the, the hippie, Jesus-free, glove-everybody-beatniks of the 1500s. They were also apologists for the Jews. And the humanists that we describe here had fully infiltrated the courts of the papacy and the bishoprics of the empire. And they are a good reason the Reformation. Next Friday, we will complete our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, Yahweh willing. Next Saturday, the devil in Luther's dreams, part two, beginning with something called the Ruslin controversy. Does the Talmud burn or not? Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.